0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Right Click Radio, the podcast which puts NFTs in context and considers the latest trends in Web3. In this episode, David Cash, curator of Decentraland, joins Right Click Save editor-in-chief Alex Estrick to discuss the changing landscape of fashion in Web3. David, the first time we came to know each other was around this publication we did, this interview with a number of key players in the metaverse fashion business, which is sort of slowly emerging and cohering, centered on Decentraland, it seems to me. And it seemed to me Decentraland Fashion Week was a moment that perhaps metaverse fashion looked like it was coming of age. And you were taken on as curator of that event. I just wondered if you could perhaps reflect to our listeners a bit about how that went down and where you see its implications being long term.
1: For anybody listening who might not be familiar, my name is David Cash. I run a company called Cash Labs. I've recently come on as curator for Decentraland. And before I officially came on in that capacity, I did this lovely thing called Metaverse Fashion Week. This is something that came up as basically a pipe dream in November, December of last year. It started with some texts, and then I met up with Sam Hamilton, who's the creative director of Decentraland, and uh, Gigi Casamiro, who's one of their lead event producers. And we had a talk at breakfast in, in Miami at Art Basel, and they were thinking about doing something towards the effect of a fashion week, but they hadn't put the pieces together yet. And basically one brainstorm session turned into a series of calls. And then me doing a million calls with a million different designers from around the world, just trying to figure out how we're gonna piece this thing together. I think that it exceeded our expectations for sure. Like, because we had no idea what to expect. I thought maybe, you know, some 10s of 1000s of people would come and see a fashion week. In reality, you know, over 100,000 people got the chance to see it live over 1.2 billion people got to see it via media, and through, you know, video content, etc, which is absolutely insane. So it definitely exceeded our expectations. I think that's one thing that's an understatement. But I think it also taught us a lot of things, a lot of great learnings, a lot of, I guess, realizations about where we are right now in terms of tech and metaverse, etc. Decentraland is An amazing metaverse solution. And and you'll notice I call it a metaverse solution, because from my perspective, you know, the metaverse really is all of these different solutions put together. And Decentraland really promotes this interoperability, this open metaverse idea, which I really love. So that's one of the reasons I initially started working with Decentraland. And that's something that we really want to take advantage with for Fashion Week. So that was one of the best things, I think, for Fashion Week is on top of being able to, you know, present fashion in a whole bunch of different formats, almost as as art more than just fashion, you know, really kind of pushing the boundaries. Um, you know, we had runway shows, we had gallery exhibitions, we had panel talks, we had videos, we had photos, we had a lot of retail experiences, that should really be mentioned in the central land itself. But also, you know, the cool thing with this interoperability aspect is a lot of the experiences that people chose to present also involved either another website or even another metaverse, my gallery, the cash labs gallery, we presented over 20 different artists from around the world in my gallery space, personally, and one of them decided to present a metahuman experience. And that's not something that we can in three dimensionality show into centerline yet, because the polygon count is still quite low. But in sites that can stream, you know, pixel stream Unreal Engine, that's absolutely possible. So you know, they linked immediately, it was a very native experience for the user, you know, they were able to you're able to just click a video, you're watching a video, it gives you a little prompt to click, you click, and it loads another web page, and it loads a pixel streaming experience. And I think that that for me is what the future of these sorts of events are going to look like. So I think that was a key learning. A lot of people from Decentraland were really excited about this idea that, oh, next year, you know, we, we called it metaverse fashion week for a reason. We don't intend for this to just be Decentraland forever. We really want for other metaverses and other platforms to be tied into this. So I think that, you know, this was the start of that. So that I'd say is the main positive from my perspective, other than reaching so many people and having so many brands be interested in this. The negative side, which I think I've learned, and maybe this is something people t- people like to touch on this sometimes, a lot of people weren't able to access it. And this is an accessibility issue. I'd say this is mainly a tech issue from my perspective. If you remember, you know, when videos started to be played more on computers, a lot of people needed to upgrade their operating system or whatever Wi Fi connection they had even service providers needed to drastically upgrade, you know, the services that they were providing. And I think that now we've kind of reached another, you know, pivotal moment where that needs to happen again, with the metaverse and having to stream full immersive virtual experiences on your Wi Fi and on your device, that is a taxing endeavor, for a technological device, I have a, like an edit a video editing laptop that's 32 gigs of RAM, it's a laptop, but it can totally stream to central But most people don't necessarily have a device that can withstand it, or you know, some people would try to load it in a coffee shop, and wouldn't be able to do so. So you know that on the negative side, I think that we've definitely come at another crux where we need to upgrade our infrastructure in terms of internet connection and our devices that we use on a day to day basis. But also, you know, that's already happening. Like, look, that we have like Elon Musk, Starlink, and all these things are already happening. So I think that we're at a really cool time. And, and I think there's a lot
0: of things to learn uh, both ways. It seems to me one of the things that I would like to know is how you see the relationship between legacy fashion, traditional blue chip brands, and what we're seeing emerge now, how seamless is that onboarding process? And if it is seamless, are we perhaps losing something of the imaginative potential that comes in a space which has no gravity, which requires people to be not necessarily in human form at all? I suppose one of the things, and this came across in our discussion with Krista Kim and Lawrence Leck, is this idea of whether the metaverse is just going to reimagine what we already have through endless morphism, or fashion that looks like it always did, or are we and are you seeing a new set of parameters for what constitutes fashion? You said that the NFT opens up a new expanded field of digital creativity where we don't have necessarily either the same old categories of fine art, new media, fashion, but rather we have perhaps a hybrid community of digital creators who work across different NFT markets, but also different creative categories.
1: No, absolutely. Are we moving towards this skeuomorphic future where you know, we're trying to replicate reality? I think some people are. But from my perspective, I really hope not people we're talking about Krista Kim. I mean, she's a dear friend of mine. And I know her partner and collaborator, Peter Martin, he's really one of the leaders, you know, in 3d scanning in 3d character design. So like it's been done virtual twins of celebrities. That's something that's already being created and and is already being created at the highest level. And I think that that's there. And there is a place for that. But when I see brands entering the space, and I am seeing a lot of brands entering space. I think something really cool to note right now is that in this bear market period, when crypto is for Web2 brands specifically, not for us, cheaper, objectively, because the price of ETH is lower, the barrier to entry is inherently lower. So I do see a lot of major web two brands right now coming into the metaverse and coming into NFTs, even if they were maybe apprehensive to do so, or were doing so slowly previously, I think this is maybe their time where they're like, okay, yeah, why not? Our 50 grand that we want to spend on an activation is going to stretch us a lot further now than it would have five months ago. And you know what? even though that it's a little bit capitalism, taking advantage of a situation, I think it's still good for the ecosystem, because it's continually injecting content and money into the ecosystem, which I think is really important. But specifically to, to your point about fashion, because I'm talking really generally here, I think that the fashion brands are now seeing the use cases that are now understanding, you know, a lot of these brands don't make decisions quickly, they'll make decisions over a matter of months, if not years, I had the pleasure of working with uh, Estee Lauder Global for Fashion Week. And I will say when we're talking about moving up outside the realm of reality, they were really open to that. And they took some really tangible aspects of their brand, some things that might be very commercial, and they took it completely out there. You know, they had a massive dropper bottle for their advanced night repair serum floating in the air, and it was a building, and it was rotating. And that was their structure. And then you could teleport into it, and then walk up to a dropper, and then click a thing, and then achieve radiance. And then your avatar would get a wearable that would allow them to glow. So like, they totally were down to go away from strict reality which i think is awesome and i think that brands entering the metaverse are really entering a new realm of experiential marketing and anytime I'm talking about the metaverse, I like to talk about within the realm of fashion or within the general realm. What I don't like to think about what we can take away from our physical lives. A lot of people think that when we're going to the metaverse, we're kind of going into the screen where it lights off in our bedroom, you know, on the computer. But I'm really thinking about what we can add to our lives. And I think finally fashion brands and all brands are starting to see that. We see everybody from Tommy Hilfinger to banks like JP Morgan coming into platforms like the Central Land now. And I think people are realizing, okay, you know, we have all these web experiences that we've invested a lot of money into. This is the next phase of that. And that also is kind of getting them into web three, which is really exciting. But I do really think that the metaverse is this touch point and events like metaverse fashion week, especially for fashion brands, if they don't see it, they can't really believe it because a lot of them don't have a conceptual understanding of web three, the metaverse NFTs, any of these things. But if they have a visual cue, like a tangible example of here's a brand that's, you know, done a fashion show, sold their work in the metaverse, people have actually bought it, there's a use case now that people can say, okay, it's real, it's less conceptual. So I think that that's why more people are those two reasons, the bear market. And, you know, now there are tangible use cases. I've done some platforms like Bright Hall have done some platforms like UNXD have done some really beautifully. And I think when people see these things, it gives them the confidence to be like, yeah, my brand can do that too.
0: Are we starting to see a new generation of influencers as well?
1: I think that the word influencer has changed. I have gotten to work in influencer marketing for quite a little while now, I've been very aware of you know, the influencer phenomenon for quite a few years, especially as it pertains to content and content creation, as I think that that's kind of like the main use if we're talking in NFT terms, the main use case of influencers, I think for brands now, when they look at an influencer versus a quote, unquote, thought leader, you know, somebody who's speaking or sharing information, writing books, writing articles, the main comparison from their perspective, an influencer, I'd say now is how brands will do brand awareness marketing, they want to put their brand in front of a lot of people reach out to influencers and partner with them. But if you look at the people with the best engagement and with the best followings, honestly, they're artists and collectors and writers and, (laughs) you know, organizers with between I would say four and 20,000 followers on Twitter, look at their retweets, look at their likes, you know, a lot of these people are getting hundreds of likes on their tweets, even though they only have 5000 followers, but they have really engaged legitimate organic audiences. So I think the age of inflated numbers, you know, even Elon Musk, like publicly said, you know, I think half my Twitter followers are bots. I'm like, we're in this age of like radical transparency. transparency. And so I think that brands, they don't drool over numbers the same way that they used to. I think there is still some kind of gravitas to including influencers, including like really impactful people in projects. When we did the Estee project, we included um, Alex Box, who is a beauty aficionado. She is a 3D beauty architect, she calls herself. She's incredible, but she has a background as a beauty editor for a whole bunch of magazines. She's verified on Instagram and Twitter. She's over 100,000 followers. But the reason I chose her was not just because she had 100,000 followers. It was because of who she is and what she does. And the statements she can share Because also, you know, when you're doing a really high profile project, especially for some of these high fashion brands, like when we're considering it in this context, it's going to get out there. The PR is happening regardless. So I think the people that they involve in the project, they care a lot more about who they are and what they have to say more than
0: just how many followers they have, which
1: I think is actually really cool.
0: In our recent article, uh, NFTs and the Future of Metaverse Fashion, you talked about how brands can engage more directly with their consumers now in the metaverse. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Anytime I'm talking about the metaverse, I really like to bring up the idea of tangibility. Things in real life can be tangible because we can touch them or we can physically experience them. But in the metaverse, I do believe there still is a realm of tangibility through experiences. If you can actually experience something and get something out of it, whether it's getting a real item that you own, or just experiencing something unique that what I like to call with brands like a moment of serendipity, if you can provide either of those things as a brand, that's immediately a memorable Moments. So, you know, experiences have to be more tangible now in the metaverse than ever. Because when we are in these virtual spaces, if everything mimics reality, we'll get bored after quite a while and we'll just go back to the real thing which we're experiencing around us. But if brands, if artists, if people can bring experiences that are unique to the metaverse, that's exciting. And anytime we're talking about the metaverse, I really do think that it's important to consider the opportunity because humans are naturally exploratory. Now that we have this virtual space, not only are we exploring it, yes, you can run around the central end the sandbox or a spatial experience with your avatar. But the exploration is more exploring what we can do and what we can create, because we're also the builders of this virtual space. So it's infinite, there is no end to what is possible in the metaverse. And the moment we kind of wrap our heads around that and see it as an opportunity versus something to be scared of, I think that's really exciting. But I think, obviously, 3d artists were first to get into this or people who created assets for video games, which who I would also consider very much 3d artists, virtual fashion comes alongside that. But I really do see, you know, the people at the top of the industry in terms of people who create virtual assets are people who do everything. I think it's really amazing. Like the artists of the future are so versatile and so talented. There's a lot of new components of this future. And yeah, they're they're amazing.
0: One thing I was gonna ask, is historically there was this division between, for example, contemporary artists and new media artists. And I think that division is becoming increasingly porous with the NFT, which allows a load of digital creators who previously weren't taken seriously to create markets for themselves. I think there was historically a division between new media artists as a collective of creators who really fetishize technology and who really try to push technology as far as it can go versus contemporary artists who tend to fetishize the decay of technology and therefore in the process somehow subvert the vertical power structures in which we are universally enfolded within capitalism. I wonder whether it's possible for digital fashion to somehow maintain a genuinely disruptive potential. But I'm interested whether there are, shall we say, socially progressive implications for the kind of work that you're seeing going on right now.
1: I think just to to root it in the context of what you started with there, contemporary, let's say, digital or mixed media art, I definitely do think that the art world almost fetishized new media art for quite a while. They wouldn't buy it. Nobody would pay for it, but they would exhibit it and tour it around the world. There are very, very isolated examples of successful new media artists, but what is that success? The first thing that really excited me about NFTs when I was entering was just the aspect ephemeral or ultra-specific art practices now have a way to commercialize themselves. I think when you apply that to fashion, I'm working on a collection right now with Dress X that we're hoping to show during Decentraland Art Week, which is presenting fashion as art to explore what fashion would look like if we're a completely disregarding reality and be considering it solely as art, not regarding wearability. What does that mean? And what does that look like? And I do think that we're already starting to see virtual fashion designers, yes, but also digital artists taking realistic forms and then skewing them. And I think Nick Knight's been doing this for quite a while, you know, taking a photograph or even a scan of somebody and then skewing it and bringing into this digital realm. The realm of reality is now expanding and virtual reality is still reality. You know, it's still an experience, again, a tangible experience that we are participating in, but it's virtual, it's digital, but it's still there. <laughs> I think fashion is very much one of the vehicles pushing the realm of what's possible. In in this virtual space forwards.
0: I think questions of identity are also really central to crypto art and work which uses NFTs. But of mm. course, there is surely nothing more quintessentially crypto art than a crypto punk. And a crypto punk as this kind of alluring 8-bit avatar does sit in a way within the tradition of portraiture. And it seems to me when you're talking about skins, likewise, we are talking about the mutation of identity or pluralization of identity. I was really interested in what you you were saying about the death of wearability. There have been moments, of course, in fashion history where wearability, or shall we say functionality, has gone out of fashion. And I just wonder, as someone who is observing both wearable and non-wearable fashion, how much of what's going on in metaverse fashion seems to continue the kind of patterns that you once saw in the in the legacy fashion world and how much is sort of perhaps genuinely new the other part of that question is the stuff that's genuinely new what are the implications of it for our own identities and perhaps how we perform our identities as we always did in a new virtual context
1: I think one thing that's really interesting when you're looking in the realm of virtual fashion specifically, when we put a piece of virtual fashion on our avatar, depending on the platform, we're given a few different options. We can click items of clothing, we can also pick a skin, and that's usually an option that's available across platforms right now. So when you're talking about identity, people say, you know, I want, I don't know, there 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 are people with a range of beliefs, right? I can't judge anybody. They can do whatever they want. Some people think they're a dog in the metaverse congratulations, you can be a dog. You can be whatever you'd like. You can have a skin to reflect whatever fantasy or ideal you could imagine. But specifically back to your question about fashion as art and you know the idea of wearability or functionality, to, get, to give you an idea of some of my thoughts, I mean, one of my favorite artists is Alberto Giacometti, the, the creator of these famous uh, unfavorable objects. I think the idea of, you know, absurdist objects has always been really exciting. But I think when we come into the metaverse, it's almost less absurd because we've already escaped the realm of reality. So when we're thinking in virtual space, if I want to make a piece of fashion that isn't inherently wearable, that could still somehow be interacted with my character. Maybe it's a balloon that floats around their head. There's a million different ways to think about it. Maybe it is their head. Maybe their head just gets replaced by a massive piece of art. I don't know. But there's, you know, when we start considering and expanding our vocabulary around what does wearing something mean, or how maybe even beyond that, not even using the word wearing, how can we interact with a piece of digital art or digital creation in a virtual manner think about it, we put art as our profile picture, what, what would the equivalent of that be? Maybe your avatar just turns into that piece of art. There's a million different ways that we could potentially interpret what that looks like. And I'm also really excited to see how different virtual fashion designers will take on that challenge, because I think we'll see a range of options ranging from like I said, you know, some people will take some suggestions literally, but you know, others, I hope will just create objects that I don't know if anybody could wear. And I think that that will be a, a
0: fabulous art piece to, to display somewhere, hopefully in three dimensionality. Of course, one of the characteristics often associated with Web2 is the way these insidious and all-encompassing algorithms not only rely on captured data about us, how we appear, the messages we send to one another, but they also help to regenerate our identities and, frankly, to fit us into new customer segments. And I wondered, as, of course, the metaverse offers new identities for sale back to us. Is it possible to imagine the image world we are inhabiting in the metaverse as being neutral? The question I want to ask is really where you see the possibilities for people to be co-opted and coerced in the metaverse in Web3, as perhaps they have been already in Web2? And what are the ways in which individual users can resist those old patterns of coercion that Web 2 developed in a hypersensitive and an almost authoritarian fashion.
1: I think one of the main things that differentiates Web 3 to Web 2 is an underlying ethos that I feel like most of us who've existed in this space share, which is this idea of self-sovereignty, the importance of decentralization, and the importance of via self sovereignty, you know, responsibility for your actions online. And obviously, there are situations that happen. And if somebody gets wrecked, I think anybody who's been in the space for more than a year or two has at some point been scammed, or you know, had some kind of situation It's almost the rite of passage, unfortunately, in the crypto space. But I feel like it almost teaches you to be hyper, you know, aware when you are participating in the space, and I feel like it's almost just a reality. When we're talking about virtual spaces and the metaverse, this same conversation does continue, but there still can be scams, there still can be issues. But I feel like when we're in immersive spaces, it also gives us the opportunity to educate in an immersive way. So, you know, when you enter Decentraland, the first place you enter is the Genesis Plaza, and it teaches you a whole bunch of stuff about Decentraland, you know, a whole bunch of information. And, you know, if we keep continue to open up the abilities of finance in there, Decentraland's already working to try to build something called Decentraland University, as are many other metaverse platforms, educate people and to teach people about these kinds of things. But then one other thing I wanted to say when we're considering entering the digital realm, and also when we're considering identity, and like you said, people, there's these kind of pre prescribed identities that people can buy. Another thing that I think is really exciting, and I had this conversation recently, via a decentralized panel that I hosted with a bunch of trans and non binary artists who are incredible. I myself am gender non conforming, I don't really identify as gender. So I had a great conversation with them about identity in the metaverse. And one thing that we were talking about, that's a really cool, opportunity is, but generally speaking in the metaverse, in virtual space, we have the opportunity, we have the ability to design what we look like. If you are a creative or you are an artist, or you would like to gain the skills to be able to create 3D art, you could create a skin for your Decentraland avatar that completely reflects how you feel. And that's really empowering for people, whether they identify as gender nonconforming or trans or whether they just don't want to look like the stock avatar that is put there. Maybe they're a person of color and they don't feel like the skin color is completely reflective of their skin color. There's a whole range of reasons why somebody might want to change their avatar. But the good news is in this digital realm, it's always an option. So I think that that also feeds back to this idea of self sovereignty, when you take full ownership for your inclusion in a space or your identity in a space, it gives you a lot of power. When you look at it that way, you actually do have full control
0: to present yourself however you would like in these virtual spaces. And that's quite cool. Do you think that alter ego is a form of resistance? Or do you think it is just a new form of conformism? I think everybody will have a different perception of what that means
1: for them. Inherently, we all just have to accept that in the near future, we will all have avatars. I mean, we already do have avatars. If you have Snapchat or Instagram or anything, they've already made an avatar for you, even if you didn't want an avatar. (laughs) And I think just considering our relationship with those virtual versions of ourselves is always interesting. I mean, the same conversation can be had about PFPs, and how that's your digital identity, you know, in virtual spaces. But I think more so when we consider avatars, there is a dystopian view, this life is better than your current life. But there's also, you know, a utopic view where, like I've said before, but I always like to hammer this home, the metaverse can really add to our lives. Let's think about what we can't do in our immediate environments. You could go to a concert happening in China with a bunch of DJs that are in 12 different countries that would otherwise never be able to perform together. But then thinking on a more practical level, in the metaverse via your avatar or via these digital twins, if you live in a country where you might be persecuted for being authentically yourself, if you're trans or non-binary and you live in Saudi Arabia, maybe the only way that you can live authentically, even for a small period of time or speak to your peers is via an avatar in the metaverse. And a lot of us don't think about that. But, you know, when we think really globally and we think in terms of access, the ability to interact and talk to people of like minds, I think is really important. So, I look at the metaverse as a lot larger of, of an opportunity. I think a lot of the conversations that I'm having right now around the metaverse as an educational opportunity, as a healthcare opportunity, as a mental health opportunity, creating resources for people in different communities. So, yeah, I, I have a lot more of a let's say holistic or a positive approach to it. There definitely is a negative side to it because, you know, when we're considering anything online, anything on the blockchain, we're considering the global stage, right? You know, everything is in in the public eye. So, things can happen, but I think generally speaking if our intentions are good, we can make really great things happen. But a lot of people I think are craving spaces to interact with their peers in virtual reality, (laughs) especially young people, especially coming out of the tail end of the pandemic. You know, we always say the world's getting smaller, but I definitely think that the borders are once again being erased. And and a lot of us have made friends or made acquaintances. I mean, we're speaking right now, We, we met through the virtual realm, let's say. And I do think that people are taking those types of relationships more seriously. So I do think that virtual camaraderie and virtual communities are being manifested in really authentic ways. You see parties. I mean, I've been to a lot of events in Decentraland with thousands of people attending, And a lot of those people are in group chats and they attended together as if they were going to attend a real event. And that's, you know, when we talk about a tangible experience, that's what I'm talking about. Even if you're doing it on your computer, you're in seven different countries. How else are you going to do that? Post-pandemic, events now forever are going to be inherently fidgetal. There's always going to have to be some virtual component to every experience. We've gotten used to having the option to see some things virtually. But now that virtual programming is is becoming a norm, I do see community in this Web3 space becoming, again, a lot more tangible.
0: It does seem to me that there is something potentially emancipatory about the kinds of socializing technologies that we are seeing. What do you think might be the Potential political implications of the metaverse of this new ontology that we are
1: seeing emerge, I do have a bit of a specific mentality on this. I mean, I've always very much believed in the the freedom aspects of it. I mean, look, I run a company that works with companies all over the world. I pay my taxes. i I pay my dues. It's expensive. It's annoying. I, I go through the process. I'm doing everything according to the books right now. That being said, I don't necessarily love the bordered governmental system that we have. And the reason I think I have that perception is because I interact with people in maybe a dozen to two dozen countries every day via virtual space, either via meetings in the metaverse or via calls like this. And I think that when you become used to working globally, the idea of borders, or the idea of differentiation really does kind of just dissolve. <laughs> and, and when I'm traveling, and you know, I have to wait for passport control it almost seems redundant because, you know, I've already been talking and working to these people with these people for for months, if not years. And now I'm just I just want to meet them in person. I think that decentralization, the metaverse, you know, a virtual space does give us a view of what the world looks like without borders. I do think that metaverses uh, and, uh, you know, self sovereignty, decentralization, these types of notions are moving a lot of people's mentalities I don't think that the same thing will happen in terms of the radicalized like right versus left, the same way that we saw in Web2, mainly because, like, let's be real, a large part of the rationale behind that is companies like Cambridge Analytica and advertising companies and people who are able to skew media in front of people. But since Web3 is decentralized, it's a lot harder to do things like that. So I think inherently, it allows people to think for themselves a little bit more, a lot of people do like to follow some kind of an idealism or a mantra. But if they read the the Bitcoin white paper, and then they start going down the whole crypto rabbit hole, I think that let's say the school of thought that they will end up buying into is mostly decentralization, self sovereignty, uh, you know, being your own bank, don't trust verify these kinds of notions, which I don't think are detrimental at all for people when they're
0: entering this digital stage. I think the only thing I'd push back on is the idea that Web3 somehow ushers in an age of transparency without misinformation. I mean, I'm conscious that there are a lot of actors within the Web3 ecosystem that treat the space as a kind of dark net. And I just wonder, as someone who operates across all of these different cultural terrains, You are one of the people who is uniquely suited to address these quite fundamental political and social questions. I'm looking for where you might be sceptical and where therefore we might need to build up new protections.
1: Look, first of all, I'm always skeptical. And I think we should never take things for face value. And I think that's also fundamental to the ethos of this space, you know, the be your own bank, don't trust verify, I don't trust, you know, unless I verify. And I hope that a lot of people take that stance in terms of the anon culture and the poor browser and uh, all, you know, the community, all of that. That's where I started. I mean, I have to be honest, you know, when back in 2014, I was interested in Bitcoin, because I thought it was, you know, a fully decentralized form of payment. And I was, you know, I had an anonymous Twitter account, and I did all all these things. I know there's a lot of people who still kind of maintain that ethos in the space right now. But from my perspective, I do think it's just a remnants of the initial stages of this space, a time where nobody accepted cryptocurrency. And it was essentially just a way to transact online anonymously, which let's be real was how a lot of people transacted illegal goods, not all of it, because you know, this is a really complex and, and a multi layered ecosystem. I think just one of the unfortunate realities or fortunate realities of decentralized centralization is a lot of the money is moving from the governments to power players within the space, you know, early investors, early adopters. So it's just that the people who are being targeted are now not the Russian and US government. It's unfortunately, like whale shark. and, And luckily, people like whale shark, for the most part, have their ducks in a row. And you know, everything's very well secure, but nothing is perfect. So we do still see breaches, and we will still see hacks. And unfortunately, something that's inherent to the space, as we see wider and wider adoption, we're going to see more of this, I think on the flip side of it, it does also allow for industries to be built, right? It wouldn't be a conversation about NFTs if we didn't mention it. You know, we're just very early to this space, you know, still. And these are some of the growing pains that we see. Same as market manipulation. If the market was fully developed, and if we had, let's say, 3 billion people in the crypto market, I don't think it would be so easy to manipulate things like Bitcoin via the Luna. It's just a matter of timing. I think when we're considering this space, and we're considering its long-term health and, and future, the immediate needs are positive governmental regulation in order for us all to continue doing what we're doing and not get taxed. Through the nose or find, or you know, in other way negatively affected by some governmental institution. I think that it, it's important for us to try to. I don't want to say behave as as a whole, but it it, it kind of is that that's why I'm being so diligent about personally, like paying taxes and making sure that my business is above ground, because crypto is being really speculated upon by governments. And if you want to be a significant player in this space, that's something that you can come to expect. But to the same effect, I think that, you know, again, the subset of the subset, the major hacks, the major scams, it's only going to hurt us in terms of governments and adoption. We are a really pivotal moment right now in terms of global regulation around this. So
0: yeah, I walk with caution. Just a final question. Based on what you said there, is there a paradox here that we need to rely on government regulation to fulfil the ideal of a more equitable global society that hinges on decentralisation, blockchain and self-sovereignty?
1: I wish we didn't have to, it would be nice if it wasn't a necessity. But in the world that we live in right now, I do think that let's say the next few chess moves are partially the governments are partially responsible for those. Let's just put it that way. I would like to see us be able to move beyond and be able to, you know, be completely self sovereign beyond these kinds of governmental institutions. If you're a complete self player, you're doing everything on your own, you in no way have a company, you know, you've just done everything in crypto, you've never taken anything into fiat, you're safe, right? We're not talking about you. I'm talking about people who want to like start a company, pay taxes, go through the whole part, hire people, you just have to at this point, you know, in some way comply with what's going on with the government. If you don't want to get wrecked on the flip side of things, get wrecked in the, you know, in the web two in the fiat world, If you want to put it in very web three terms, long term, I would love to see a feature where it doesn't have to be such a priority. It's an ecosystem for a reason, right? It's all it all comes together where we all work within the same system. It's web three, right? Whether you're doing virtual fashion, whether you're a metaverse builder, whether you're an NFT artist, whether you're a writer or an editor, I think it is all an ecosystem and we all are supporting each other. We are the ecosystem that feeds itself.